So we were like uh, about halfway, maybe three quarters of the way through our discussion, our contentious conversation, our disagreement, whatever you want to call it, when we pulled up into the driveway. And uh, it all centered around our five-year-old, Zeke, and his progress in learning how to swim. And uh, the conversation was put on pause as we go to unbuckle toddlers from car seats. The car, it smells like chlorine, and I leave the seat damp as I get up to unbuckle them. And uh, in the, the breeze, I, I hear the sound of my name being called, Jeremy, Jeremy, like a moan or a groan. And at first, I, I think it's just like the kids in the car, like messing with me or something. And then it grows steadily louder, Jeremy, Jeremy. And I, I look across the street, and it's Juanita, my neighbor, 88 years old, and she's collapsed on the flight of concrete stairs. And so I rush over, and I give her mouth to mouth, first thing. Just playing. <laughs> I rush over. I'm like, Juanita, what, what happened here? You know, her walker is tipped over. Groceries are, are spilled all over the place. Like, what, what is going on? She's just exhausted like, a, like a, a bag of bones. She had tried to walk all the way down to grocery outlet and walk all the way up. She doesn't want help from anybody. All the neighbors have offered. No, 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 no. I, I want to live on my own. I want to do my thing. All right. So I'm talking to her. I'm like, hey, is let's get you up the stairs. And so she looked like a bag of bones. She felt like a bag of bones too. I put my, my hands under her armpits and I could just feel her, her skin stretching and thin. And I lift her up and she's like, no, 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 don't, don't, don't strain yourself now. And I'm like, come on, girl. You're like 85 pounds. I'm swole. I am yoked. It's disrespectful. No, 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 don't, don't strain yourself. I'll like basically carry her up the stairs very slowly. And I finally seat her in the bench right outside her front door, and she collapses on the bench. She's, she's winded, she's labored, her, her skin looks pale, her eyes halfway open. And I ask her, is there anybody that I can call? No, 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 there's, there's no one. Uh, I just need to rest a bit. And I'm like, well, I know her husband died like six years ago, and her family's all in Louisiana. Apparently there's nobody. And uh, she said that she's got this terrible pain in her left arm. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. We better, we better go get the other neighbor who's like more, you know, apt to do this sort of stuff. I get my neighbor, next door neighbor, and she goes right into Juanita's face and says, Juanita, uh, do you want me to take you to the hospital? She says, no, 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 I, I, just, I just need to rest a bit and get my strength back. And uh, I'm like, well, here's the thing, Juanita. If we, like, take you into your house, seat you on the couch or in your bed, I'm afraid that you're not going to be able to get back up again. Like, honestly, I'm like, dude, she's going to die if, if I put her in her bed or whatever. And so we're like, how about we get the ambulance or have them, you know, transport you to the hospital. They'll take care of you. Oh, okay, okay, all right. And so I call 911, and I'm online with the dispatcher, and he's telling me, like, to do all these different things. I need you to go into her house and, and get any medicines that she's taking. So I'm like, all right, Juanita, like, let's, 
do you have medicine? Yeah, it's on the table in the house. So I, I go in there and, whoo, man. I mean, I've seen the outside of her house and it looks thrashed, right? 88 years old, living by herself. But walking into her house, gag reflex. And I have a pretty, pretty strong stomach, but gag reflex immediately. And then it clicked, like, I hadn't seen her taking out the trash for months now. It's all piled in mounds all throughout her house, overflowing, spilling out of the, the sink, on the counter, everywhere. There's just like one little pathway to the kitchen, to the living room where she, she sleeps. And I'm like, this is no way to live. You can't live like this, but this is what she wants to do. She's so adamant. But I, I, I grab the medicine, and I'm like holding my breath the whole time. Go outside, the, the paramedics come in full force. Whole brigade of, you know, police cars and, and fire engines. I just need to transport to the hospital, but they've got sirens blaring, lights flashing, alerting the whole neighborhood. And I, I see across the street, peeking out the window of my own house, a little head through the curtains, watching it all. So they, they load Juanita up on the gurney and, and help her down, asking us all sorts of questions. And then they put her into the belly of the ambulance. And I, I wave reassuringly to the little face in the window across the street. We say goodbye, they, they take the ambulance away, take her to the hospital, and I, I just feel this wave of relief. Like, okay, cool. Like, she's not gonna die on my watch. This will be good. And then I, I head back home. And as I walk in through the front door, Zeke is still sitting there at the window, staring out. He's been sitting there the whole entire time, says Tara. He hasn't moved a muscle. Ever since you left, he's been there. His face is full of concern. He, he seems somber, very, very reflective and nervous and scared. Why, why does Juanita have to go in the ambulance? Why does she have to go to the hospital? And I hold him on the couch. It's okay, man. They're going to take good care of her. I know, I know. But his face, it looks like he's about to cry. Where he felt, where I, I felt relief, he feels anything but. And he tries to smile, but it's written all over his face. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And so I say, well, maybe you could pray for her. Because prayer changes things. And we pray because God listens and moves and does more than we could ever ask or imagine. And the Bible is filled with prayers, prayers that change things. There's a whole book of them called the Psalms, containing 150 Psalms that stretch the 15th century to the 3rd century B.C. They're these songs and poems and prayers offered to God. And the Psalms, they teach us that profound change happens always in the presence of God, and people who pray are a people living in hope. And over the course of the summer, we've explored all types of psalms, psalms of prayer, uh, of praise and anger and thanksgiving and joy. But today, I want to focus on a huge section of the psalms called laments. 
And do you realize that half the Psalms are actually laments, crying out in prayer to God in our sadness and sickness and grief and loss and death and dying? And this tells me that it's awfully common to think, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And it's awfully common, and it goes with the territory of our brokenness, our world ravaged by sin. But when you lament with the Psalms, you're actually doing something about that awfully common brokenness. You're asking God to create the conditions in which it will become possible for you to offer praise again. And so today, we continue with the Psalms of Summer, where we're exploring words and hopes and dreams and truths and promises about God and us and all that it means for our world. And today, we're going to focus on Psalm 42 and what to do when all you can think is, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? But let's pray before we begin. Now, I invite you to maybe just open up your hands to receive from God today. God, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from you right where we are. Maybe in the depth of our struggle or the mountaintop experience of joy. We want to know you and love you in a way that is deeper and more transforming. Not just for our own lives, but for the lives of those around us. Help us to be loved by you today, to love you and love those around us better. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 42. It's about halfway through the Bible, and it begins like this. As the deer, a doe, a deer, a female deer, actually, as the deer longs, or pants with thirst for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. But do you know why a deer longs or pants with thirst for streams of water? I mean, the psalmist could have used any animal, bear, dog, sheep, pachycephalosaurus, but no, a deer. You know, dogs pant on hot days, but deer do not. Generally speaking, deer actually get about 90% of their water from the food that they eat. So it's not often that they're walking around looking for a stream or something to drink. Often cases, they, they go for, for a long time without even having a water source. So if it's common knowledge that deer don't pant like dogs do when they're hot and thirsty, why would the psalmist write, as the deer longs or pants for streams of water, so I long for you, O God? Do you know why a deer longs for streams of water? Because it's dying. 
It's not pretty, and there's really no way to sugarcoat it, but I've got it on good authority according to thehuntingbeast.com and my brother-in-law who likes to murder helpless animals with his bow and arrow, and a good friend of mine who's a world-class hunting guru native of Texas. Gut shot deer. Those deer who are shot in the stomach or the intestines are deer who long or pant for streams of water. Unlike deer hit in the vitals, which die quickly of shock and hemorrhaging, gut-shot deer usually die of septicemia, which is blood poisoning, where the deer may experience pain, no kidding, nausea, and fever. And it's this fever that causes great thirst. It's why many gut-shot deer are actually recovered near bodies of water. The fever causes severe thirst. And, and though the deer probably can't comprehend why, they crave and seek out the water. This septicemia, blood poisoning, mixed with hypovolemia, blood loss, it creates this natural instinct for a gut-shot deer to race toward the water. It dehydrates it, ups the body temp, and creates a sensation of thirst. So maybe we should just translate it as the gut shot, dehydrated and dying deer longs for streams of water. So I long for you, oh God. And we might as well sing, as the gut shot, dehydrated and dying deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Got a little high there. <laughs> but that's gruesome. No one wants to sing that. But I think the expression, I think it communicates that this all-encompassing, all-consuming, I am going to die without you desire for God. It's that devotion so strong that it requires all of our energy and all of our focus. It's that desperation so absolute that it requires a radical recalibration, a radical reorientation of everything in our lives. I long for you, O oh God with a desire and a devotion and a desperation like my life depends on it. Because it absolutely does. In a world where brokenness is so awfully common, we move through life like gutshot, dehydrated, and dying deer. The circumstances have us feverish and bleeding out. And verse 2 says, I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only tears for food. It's like I'm on a diet of tears. Tears for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. While my enemies continually taunt me, saying, Where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking. As I remember how it used to be, those were the good old days. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. But everything has changed now. The good old days are gone. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? But then there's this radical shift. It's like, I'm desperate, I, I, I'm nonstop crying, where is God, my heart is breaking, why am I, I discouraged, why is my heart so sad, but I will put my hope in God. Wait, what? And yeah, the Hebrew is yachal, meaning to wait, 
to wait with a hopeful expectation because after all, people who pray are people living in hope and sometimes that means waiting. Uh, but um, nothing about the external situation has changed for the better. Like remember, you're desperate, nonstop crying, everybody's asking you, where's your God? Your heart is breaking. Exactly, because that's what the Psalms of Lament do. They regularly trace a complaint back to confidence in God. They move from desperation to praise. And here is the most amazing part. They do so without ever telling us that the external situation has changed for the better. The psalmist is all mixed up with emotions. And given this level of distress, it's like they they have to tell themselves, just hang on. Don't give up. If God's mercies are new every morning, you can count on it. You can be confident that you will have reason to praise God again. So I will praise him again, my Savior and my God, even if it means gutting it out right now in faith, even if I don't feel it. The psalmist lives out hope as a way of waiting, of hanging on, and praise as a way of recalibrating. And you're going to need it because verse 6 says, Now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you, even from distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, the river, from the land of Mount Mazar. So way up past the Sea of Galilee in Lebanon, there's this mountain, Mount Hermon, and its source, it's the source of the Jordan River. It's capped in snow. And then there's this Mount Mazar, which seems to be a hill or a mountain, part of this this mountain range. Even from way up there, far from the temple, in deep discouragement, I will remember you, O God. Now that is a powerful thing, memory, to remember in the middle of discouragement. And not just in any bit of discouragement, but deep discouragement. That term, zahar, is rendered to remember, but it also means to name or, or to mention. It's like saying, I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you, God, in such a way that names, mentions, calls attention to you, God. Your character and your past actions. And like the melting snows of Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan River, to remember God's character and past actions is to remember the source of hope and strength and courage and goodness, especially in deep discouragement. I remember you did it then. Surely, surely you can do it again. I remember she said that her hope was all but shriveled up. Well, how how many miscarriages had it been? They had been trying for 10 years. And now her boy just graduated high school. I remember he he was lost in the snow with a broken leg, an open compound fracture. And it was by chance that he was rescued. Remember, she was addicted 
empty pill bottles everywhere, her eyes dilated and glazed over. But now she's three years clean. Mm. Remember feeling like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel. But then someone said, quitting is for quitters. I remember all the alarms going off. A blue baby in a plexiglass chamber resuscitated back to life. I remember you did it then. Surely you can do it again. I hear the tumult, that is the uproar, the chaos of the raging seas. As your waves and surging tides sweep over me, I'm tossed, I'm turned by the waves, I'm overwhelmed, right? But each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, and it overwhelms me more. And through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. There's there's a a shift occurring here where hope begins to surface. There's the remembering of God's steadfast, faithful, unfailing love. There's the history of God coming to deliver here, being present here and now. But then, oh God, my rock, I cry. Why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones. They scoff. Where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And somehow God seems absent when the crisis is urgent. Why have you forgotten me? I think it's one of the most amazing parts about the Psalms of Lament is that we come with this rather bold assumption that God cares that I am in pain and that God is expected to do something about it. That is a remarkable assumption when you think about it. And I don't think we often do. That the God who made the heavens and the earth cares that I am in pain. Yet it's the only thing that explains this strange style of biblical prayer, a style without parallel in the ancient world. In no other culture in the ancient world did, did people pray to the high God in a language so strong, so forthright, even so rude. Why have you forgotten me? But I think now we begin to see why the Psalms are so central to our faith. They push so hard at God in the most personal terms. They push the extent of our own faith, our own limited faith, causing it to grow. All because it's real, raw, honest prayer, learning to take a step in hope because prayer changes things. The language is poetic but so raw and direct. Why have you forgotten me? And then, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? But to that, again, the psalmist says, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Uh, But nothing, nothing about the external situation and the circumstances has changed for the better. 
Remember, you're desperate, nonstop crying. Everybody's asking, where is your God? Your heart is breaking. You're tossed and turned by the waves, overwhelmed by grief, oppressed by enemies. You're taunted to where it cuts to the bone. You're discouraged. You're sad. You're like a kid sitting by the window when your neighbor's taken away in an ambulance. Exactly. That's what the Psalms of Lament do. They regularly trace a complaint back to confidence in God, moving us from desperation to praise, and yet they do so without ever telling us that the external situation has changed for the better. And that is why we pray, because prayer changes things, and chaos does not and cannot have the last word. I will put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. Even if it means gutting it out in faith right now, even if I don't feel it, the psalmist lives out hope as the way of waiting and hanging on and praise as the way of recalibrating. But let's be real. Half an hour from now, when you step outside these doors, when interruption comes, when the problems resurface, when the cold, hard realities of life reemerge, or strike unexpectedly, you might realize you have no reason, no reason for hope, no reason for praise. Like, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? It's like a shot to the gut, like an arrow racing straight through. Fear, guilt, shame, surprise, disgust. It knocks you back and your your hands are fumbling. You're grasping at straws as the saying goes, but it's no use. You've lost, you're spent, you're through. Nothing left because you are at your lowest with nothing. Just a mouthful of ashes. And people come and people go and cars pass by and the world turns on and on and it goes. And the floorboards that you you never even realized that you put your trust in, they've turned to shifting sands. It's like everything you once knew, everyone you once knew to be safe and secure and trustworthy, they're now worthless and trustless. Friends and family, no, you're alone. Isolated, no. Abandon. And of course, the, the words have more of a feeling than a meaning. Contempt, betrayal, depression. But um, if only there were a... W- no, there's not. Well, if only you could just... No, you can't. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? And you know, I I don't see the world through your eyes. I don't know what it feels like to walk a mile in your shoes. I don't know what thoughts are weighing on your mind. But maybe you felt or maybe you feel exactly what I'm talking about right now. And isn't it interesting how we may feel a lot more than we know? And so I think we need to know that all the world at all costs is trying to convince you to make you feel and know and come to the conclusion that there is no reason, no reason for hope, no reason to praise. 
But I beg to differ. There is every reason. And as Job put it, and let's face it, you and I, we're not Job. But Job, who lost everything imaginable, put it like this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Because our God is a big God. He is a good God who sees beyond your circumstances. He's timeless. In fact, he came up with the whole idea of time. And your little blip of life on the radar is so minuscule in the totality of the mind of God. But your problems and your pain are so intensely personal to God. And your life is so important and so purposeful for our world. And not just these hundred years or so, but the generations, eternity the kingdom of God. Our God is a big God and a big God of love, of care, compassion, forgiveness, restoration. He is the reason for hope because in him you are a new creation. The former things have passed away. As far as the east is from the west, God has separated your sin from you. And even though the crashing waves and surging tides sweep over you, even though your heart is breaking, even though you're so deeply discouraged and your heart is so sad, even though you cry out, God, why have you forgotten me? When you lament in good faith, when you open yourself up to God entirely, honestly, fully, no matter what it is that you have to say, you are beginning to clear the way for praise. You are straining toward the time when God will turn your tears into laughter and mourning into praise. When you lament, you are asking God to create the conditions in which it will become possible for you to offer praise again. Conditions, it turns out, that are mainly within your own heart. You go from complaint back to confidence in God, from desperation to praise, and this move is made without ever telling us that the external situation has changed for the better. Like, what has happened? What has changed in the psalmist's experience of suffering? Nothing, actually. Everything, actually. The knowing that God has heard and the hoping, waiting trust that God will move in God's ways, in God's time, for God's purposes. Aren't we all like little boys just peeking out the window at the discouragement and sadness on our doorstep? Aren't all the, the difficulties of life that we don't understand, but we face regardless because we live in a world where it's awfully common to think, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? We live in a territory of brokenness, a world ravaged by sin, and yet we are not without hope, because hope always has the last word. And so when it's all that you can think, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Like, what do you do? Maybe you could pray. But I know that when all I can see, when all I can think is, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I I overthink, I worry, I stress, and I get disoriented. I don't, I don't know which way to go. But there's a quote that has helped me immeasurably 
and it's from a book called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. A boy and his horse are in the woods, and the boy says to the horse, I can't see a way through. And for how many of you today is that the truth of your life? Whatever the circumstance might be, whoever might be calling right now, whatever is weighing on your heart, you're just like, man, I can't see a way through. And the horse says to the boy, well, well can you see your next step? And the boy says, yes, just take that, says the horse. You know, all the time we look at the chaos of the raging seas and the waves and the surging tides sweeping over or the circumstances that have us feverish and bleeding out. And we look at the struggle and the distance between where we are and where we need to be and it's insurmountable. It's unattainable. It's, it's overwhelming. It's like all I can hear is the negativity. Sure, maybe the taunts and the scoffs of the naysayers, but the insecurities in my own head are far more paralyzing. I can't see a way through. Can you see your next step? Just take that, the next step. When all I can see, when all I can think is, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? What if the next step is to pray? To pray for the next step. And then take that step. And then pray for the next and take a step. And pray and take a step. And pray and take a step. To pray and step with a desire and a devotion and a desperation like my life depends on it because it absolutely does. Let's pray. We long for you, oh God. because you are the source of life and hope and truth and peace and understanding all the things that we seek after. Our hearts are restless until they are found in you. And it's like all the world outside is chasing after and seeking after things that, that don't satisfy. And we've bought into that and we think that they satisfy, but only you, God, can. We get so paralyzed in life the things that people say or the things we tell ourselves, the insecurities weigh us down. And I pray, God, today that we would leave them here, that we would rise up and become new, that we would be brave enough to take the next step. And that means to pray and then walk and pray and walk. We follow you. God, I pray that if someone here today, and I, I feel like it is, they, they want to experience you for the first time. I pray that they would open up their heart entirely to you and say, Jesus, I, 
hear that you died on the cross for my sin, for the things I've done wrong, I ask that you would, you would come into my life because you died for my sins and you rose from the grave. You defeated death. I wanna live in that truth to come into my life and be my king. And God, I know there are people in here today who want to live in a greater way with you. And I pray, Lord, right now, if we want to live just greater, that, that we would just stand up, God, that we would ma actually make a move. And so if that's you today, you can open your eyes, you can close your eyes. I don't care. Just stand up if you want to make a move toward God today. Just stand up. Maybe a testimony saying, Jesus, I want to live a greater walk with you. I'm not going to let the things that have held me back so long hold me back today and tomorrow and the next day because each step I'm going to take is a step that is based in prayer and it is following you. We want to long for you, God. So help us to put our hope and our waiting and our trusting, not in ourselves or not in the things of this world, but solely in you. We cry out, we wanna live for you in the way that you have called us to live, to be your light and salvation upon this earth, Lord. And so we walk in your way for your truth and for your purposes.